You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your source for growth in the area of national security law, whether in the midst of pandemic uh, and hail times of glee. I'm Yvette. I'm Nicole. A quick reminder, as always, the lawyers here on NSLT are appearing in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right, learned listeners, you might have noticed as you read through all 4,500 pages of the National Defense Authorization Act that new crimes were added to the bill, crimes that are intended to penalize the enabling of kleptocracy. Uh, And we're going to talk about those provisions again later with another guest. But in order to understand why these provisions are necessary, you'd have to first understand the problem of global kleptocracy and have what all lawyers need, your facts. As it turns out, a new book sets forth exactly who the main players are and why filthy lucre is an existential threat to both democracy and human decency. Our guest today is Tom Burgess, who is the author of Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World and a writer for the FT. Uh, Financial Times. Tom, thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. I like the uh, I like the summary of the book. I, that's uh, that's lovely. Filthy Luca is exactly it. <laughs> um, Tom, welcome to the program. I jo- enjoyed your book immensely and highly recommend it to our listeners. Um, it was a massive undertaking. You really do map out uh, just all of the financial entanglements that are you know that are you know, all the big money that's going on and and changing hands, all of these white collar crimes um, that crosses over into um, some, you know, other crimes. You've got kidnapping, there's murders, there's lots and lots of money changing hands, there's Interpol and red notices. You know, I I was, you know, when I heard, read about uh, John LeCarré's um, passing, um, I I really invoked uh, some of his spy novels when I was reading your book. Um, Can you just tell us like where all this started from you're you're talking about um a lot of this corruption um this this uh this money changing hands um being rooted in the former soviet union can you just like set the stage for the backdrop of the book um what happened in the soviet union that led to this system of corruption and how did it metastasize into a global system of kleptocracy um thanks for that I'll go one more step back for me from the Soviet Union, which is the the hot Russia, if you like, Nigeria. It's kind of a very similar country in many ways. And that's the kleptocracy that I've lived in the longest. I used to be the Financial Times correspondent there. And that's the place where I really saw in day-to-day life what it's like to live in a kleptocracy, where corruption has gone from being the aberration to being the system of power itself. Um, And then I came back to the UK, uh, wrote a book about the oil and mining business in Africa, and then started to get increasingly interested in the former Soviet Union around the time that Donald Trump started to campaign for the presidency first time around. Um, And um, when we started to look into his connections to the former Soviet Union, and then what happened one day, well, serendipitously, as these things always are, is I was uh, doing a talk about corruption at the Frontline Club in London. It's the War Correspondents Club in London, a great place, um, full of intrigue. And at the end, uh, a man at the back put his hand up. Uh, he was balding, kind of mid-50s. As I remember it, um, pretty provocative shirt. 
And uh, he said, you know, people were chipping in with their opinions about corruption. He put his hand up and said, well, actually, until quite recently, I used to work for a Swiss bank in London. And I can tell you there was a lot of corruption going on there. At which point I caught the eye of my my investigations editor in the, in the audience. And we, our eyes bulged and thought, who the hell is this guy? Anyway, that was Nigel. And we got to into him in the bar afterwards. And then we had lunch with him and um, I got to know him very well. And he, as you know, is is our kind of every man in in my book, in my new book, Kleptopia. He's he's one of the the four stories through which I try to unfold this these global networks of corruption that are gathering more and more power onto themselves. And you're right to say that the Soviet Union is the sort of birthplace of this. It's a lot of the um, the, the kind of tidal wave of dirty money that has washed into the democracies. Not all of it. Some of it comes from Nigeria, the Middle East and elsewhere. But a lot of it comes from this astonishing moment at the end of the Cold War, where essentially the Soviet regime realizes that things are going to turn capitalist. So it converts communist power into capitalist power. How do you, what is capitalist power? It's money. So they essentially start shipping abroad um, all the money they can lay their hands on from within the Soviet system and laundering it through um, Western businesses. And that process, which has also been happening with, with kleptocratic money from the big petro states in the Middle East, from parts of Africa, parts of South America and Asia and so on, that process has brought with it massive quantities of dirty money into the West. But with it comes the, the real poison um, of kleptocratic states, which is uh, tribalism and the violence that's used to keep these secrets secret. All right. But key to these... Um... The laundering of dirty money has been Western banks, and you started to talk about that a bit. But um, although it's something that we think about, and it gets quite a lot of publicity in the United States, and sometimes it's even dramatized, can you describe more generally what Western banks have done, how they participated in this, how they've enabled this shift toward global financial corruption? But what we have in the global financial system is essentially a very dangerous fiction that's become so widespread that it's become totally normalized. And that's the idea that um, legal entities rather than human beings are um, act in the financial system, are the, are, are the beings, if you like, that make decisions and do things. So the, 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 the entire global financial system is based on the kind of our, our collective illusion that companies act and move money and make decisions. And you can have bank accounts in their names and the human beings, utterly crucially, the human beings behind them can be invisible. Now this has become such a commonplace that we, we, we don't even think about it anymore, but it is truly bizarre. So the front company is the, is the engine of global kleptocracy. It's the crucial cog by which that works. Essentially the, the mechanism by which someone can uh, receive a kickback for uh, on a, corrupt contract in Azerbaijan or Senegal or Venezuela, um, that kickback can be paid into a bank account held by an anonymous company, an anonymously owned company, you know, let's call it, uh, let's call it Yvette Limited. Um, and that, that company's owners are completely secret. Possibly it's never not written down anywhere. Possibly it's done on a handshake. More likely there's some, there's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of corporate secrecy. And Event Limited of, uh, let's say the Bahamas, um, can then spend that money buying a, a mansion or a piece of art or a politician in Washington DC. Now th th that on that on that basis, the financial system 
is utterly awash with the proceeds of cryptocracy and um, helping it to move into the West. I, I had a conversation the other day with someone who's quite deep inside Western law enforcement who um, points out that uh, every year about 400,000 suspicious activity reports are filed in the UK and they're filed. So that's so that's when a bank has a client or, you know, possibly an, an anonymously held company or, or sometimes even a hu- an actual human being wanting to conduct a financial transaction. And the, someone in the bank says, hang on a second, this is pretty this is pretty weird. This guy's the brother of the oil minister of Kuwait or whatever it may be. This is, there's probably something fishy about that. You know, his annual salary is about $40,000 and he's buying a £2 million yacht. Um, we should probably flag that. Um, and what they do is they use a system that's become completely counterproductive. Uh, the suspicious activity report system. There's obviously one in the, uh, that the Treasury uses in the US as well. So 400,000 times a year, the banking system in the UK has said to a little office at the National Crime Agency, there's about 30 people working there, um, we think there's a suspic- suspicious tra- transaction going on and we're going to do it anyway. That's the thing. That's the point that so often these regulatory regimes are held up as being indication that an indication that the, the, that the system is clean. And yeah, sure, I guess it has become harder to move, maybe not harder, but more complicated to move dirty money around in, in recent years, certainly since 9-11 and, 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 and the, um, the alarm about terrorist financing. It's made it a bit harder. But the, the point is that this system, what the system now allows is for the financial system to say, okay, that transaction is pretty suspicious. Uh, we're going to tell the authorities about it. That will give us cover if it turns out to have been really massively suspicious. And when it comes to the really big customers, we can probably get away with not, not filing, the, not filing uh, quite, quite, as much, quite as much on them. And there's, for me, that's just one example of a system that is set up to look legitimate, but, but facilitate um, criminal money laundering. I think that's what was one of the most fascinating things I took away from the book, which is, you know, you kind of, as an American or a Westerner, you're saying, oh, well, this corruption is happening over there, right? It's happening in Africa. It's happening in uh, Russia. Um, but you're talking about how uh, Tony Blair is a is an advisor to one of the major uh, kleptocrats you did, you um talk about in the book, um, the, the now former president of Kazakhstan. Um, and that was that was really eye-opening to me. And something that really jumped out at, at me was this quote from your book, um, the only thing more corrupt than a kleptocratic dictatorship was a kleptocratic democracy. There were so many more people who could demand to be bought off, and it was much harder simply to imprison or otherwise eliminate them. But we figure out how to do it, right? Um, this money is washing around in the UK. It's flowing through um, real estate deals in, in America that you talk about. Um, that was mm-hmm. that was something that really jumped out, like how interconnected all of these networks are. Well, let, I mean, imagine for a second that you, through your um, your Bahamas company, Yvette, you, you that, that's how you're trying to strengthen up your kleptocratic dictatorship. What you don't want to become is an absolute pariah. So the example of the sort of kleptocratic pariah state, obviously, is North Korea. We, we, we focus on other parts of what the North Korean regime does, but one of the main things it does is um, is enrich its leadership through um, corrupt deals with China and through the use of slave labor and the export of um, certain resources and so on. But what you don't want to be, if you're designed, say you were designing a kleptocratic state from, from scratch, you probably wouldn't want to be such a pariah. It has its advantages in terms of secrecy, but what you really want, if you're, say, Nazarbayev, who was for so long the ruler of Kazakhstan, basically is still in charge, um, 
you don't want to be a pariah. What you want, the, 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 the real trick to pull off here is the kind of the dual state. And we can get into that idea more if, if, if you'd like. But essentially, you have, um, you, you use your power to steal from the Commonwealth, to steal from, from that which belongs to your people. So that's usually by getting kickbacks from oil and uh, mining contracts and that kind of thing. Um, so you loot as much as you can, and then you move that money into the West where it does two things. One, it's your insurance policy. You know, it, it helps to keep you safe because you can conduct your political operations, your influence operations, your lobbying um, ab um, abroad. So if there is a sudden uh, upheaval at home, you've got that insurance parked abroad. Um, at the same time, um, that money abroad is helping to buy legitimacy for you. So it's uh, it's running court cases against your enemies that make them look like they're the crooks. It's using lobbyists like, say, Paul Manafort to um, try to, to burden your image, because the more you can have Western democratic buy-in to your image as a legitimate ruler, the more that feeds back at home and hence strengthens you at home because it helps you to squash your enemies. Um, but at the same time, you've got to have the violence that underpins it all. You've got to be able to pull the trigger when necessary. So one of the, you, you, you mentioned it, you, you sort of alluded to it a moment ago, one, one of the most harrowing moments of the book is the Zanosian massacre in 2011. So I managed to get to Zanos in this godforsaken town in the steppe uh, near the Caspian Sea, where in 2011 on the Kazakh Independence Day, the security forces massacred peaceful demonstrators. But then the crucial thing that happened was the brutalizing of of history, the brutalizing of the public record. This is what kleptocrats do. They manipulate information. Money laundering is the manipulation of information, the erasing of money laundering's past, but they do that with other parts of the public record, especially their own violence. So in this case, a terrible few weeks of torture unfolded um, in, in, in Kazakhstan to create an alternative narrative where the dictatorship remained legitimate and its enemies were um, were the real thugs. And then the president has comes to the moment where he is going to deliver a speech in Cambridge at the kind of, you know, the, um, the great seat of rational learning in the, in the West. And um, he's got a problem because his security forces just massacred a load of people. And even the Kazakhs can't prevent all information about that leaking out. So he turns to one of the great communicators of the West, turns to Tony Blair. And Blair gives him advice on how to spin this for the media and it is i agree a shocking moment in the book where you see the readiness of great statesmen in the west blair i grew up in, the, in manchester in the 1990s you know blair was a hero but now you see him um becoming enormously rich by helping these murderous kleptocrats do things like this and you see the extent to which dirty money is seeping through the great institutions and some of the great individuals of the democracies well, that's another thing that really uh, jumped out is, you know, you're talking, you're, you, you alluded to one of the major characters in, in the book, Nigel, um, who was a regulator. And you talk about um, how the regulators are fairly long suffering, right? They end up being smeared a lot of the time. They end up being, you know, uh, demonized or pilloried or fired or worse um, when it comes to what they uncover uh, while they're trying to do their jobs. Yeah. Uh, and it, and there's a, it seems to be that there's a huge disconnect between 
what ostensibly we uh, are, are trying to achieve, right, in the West as far as, you know, making sure that we hold these criminals to account um, versus uh, what actually happens, what actually plays out, that there is a, mm-hmm. a, a, an incentive for governments to continue collecting this this laundered money, um, especially when there's a financial crisis and tax revenues are down. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the power gap between these giant instruments of kleptocracy, um, these giant banks, and the, the regulators who are trying to do their jobs and the state that's kind of in, in between? Yeah, well, and also the crucial question is what those jobs really are. I mean, there's this fine line, isn't there, between having a regulator, especially in the city of London, this great sort of aorta of the global money system. It's a fine line between having a regulator that is doing what it's supposed to do. That is imposing wider societal norms on the sector, sector it polices. So essentially making sure that any one sector, finance or farmer or, or the legal profession, um, doesn't do stuff that is generally damaging to society as a whole. That's the point of a regulator, as I understand it. Um, and it's an expression of the balance of powers within a society. So on the one hand, it's meant to do that. On the other, if it's gone wrong in some way, it can end up having the opposite effect, which is legitimizing um, evils that flow out from one sector. So Nigel Wilkins, you know, th- this is one of the fascinating things about reporting the book, and I hope about reading it, is that, you know, we we see the way these worlds, on the one hand, like a, a, a distant remote village um, in, in Kazakhstan, suffering a massacre or, or a Zimbabwean election, um, or, or Nigel wandering along Cheapside in the centre of London, we see the way these worlds intersect. And with Nigel, there's this extraordinary moment. I don't want to give away the whole the whole story, but there is this astonishing moment. That I, could, I could see going through his his personal papers where he kept uh, amazing uh, records of these things there's this moment where nigel realizes that he has been sitting on a thousand pages essentially of the secrets of the global kleptocracy and by this time he's working at the financial regulator as you say financial by then it's called the financial conduct authority um in london um polices british banks essentially and um nigel goes to his bosses and says um I've, I've got all this stuff about the Swiss bank things it was doing right in the heart of London. It's like a two minute walk from the Bank of England. And he, he emails his bosses a couple of these, a couple of pages of what he's, what he's got. And a day goes by and the bosses call him in and they sit him down and they say, and this is extraordinary. I'm able to write this quite vivid scene in the book because I've got the, I've got the records of these meetings. They, they, Nigel's bosses sit him down and, Suddenly he's walked into like a Kafka novel and he slowly starts to his horror to realise what's happened. The boss is saying, where did you get this stuff? And he explains that he stole it from a Swiss bank because he was a compliance officer and he had a responsibility to keep evidence he found of money laundering under the law. He was legally obliged to do that. That was his job and his legal responsibility. And the boss is saying, have you got any more? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he starts to starts to offer to show them something. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't want to see any of this. You're not supposed to have this. You uh, have violated customer, they use a terrible term, customer, customer confidentiality. And um, therefore you're going to be marched from the building and you're going to be suspended and we're going to have a disciplinary inquiry. Uh, And at the end of that disciplinary inquiry, Nigel is fired for gross misconduct. What he has done is try to support, try to report very legitimate suspicions um, about very questionable people. 
um, doing very questionable things right in the heart of the city of London. But the city of London regulatory machine, as Nigel discovers, this is how he would see it. The machine is there to make um, the financial industry look legitimate, not to make it behave in legitimate ways. For one thing, the, the, the UK regulator is paid for by the banks. It's paid for by the banks. For another thing, as Nigel found out, a lot of the people who work in the regulators, sure, there are good, honest, uh, hardworking people trying in good faith to police the financial industry, but there's also a lot of people who want to get a job in a big bank eventually. And you get this revolving door between the two. And you get this feeling, this culture, whereby the regulators see it as their job to um, not to get in the way of money making. And um, you see it again and again with the institutions of, 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 of the West. That's, that's in a way quite a subtle one with the regulators, but you see it more and more with the law enforcement agencies that they are becoming weapons in the spread of the kleptocracy that they are supposed to resist. So, and you make reference to Ernst Frankel's The Dual State, of course, which is um, just brilliant. Um, for those of you, yeah. wonderful. And if, for those of you who haven't read it, um, you really should, because I think on a theoretical level, you need to understand the gap between, say, FinCEN with its 300 employees and millions and millions of SARS, um, sort of the appearance of, of rule of law versus the actual rule of law and that gulf being perhaps wider than we'd all care to admit. Um, but, and, and by the way, Nigel, what a, what a hero, almost a Quaker um, type of figure, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, well, but, although that was, his, that was his background, yeah, but he, he, he was very much a, an atheist, but he was informed, I think, by that, by that world. Yeah, yeah, very brave man. Well, Frankel, Nigel, these people are phenomenally brave, yeah. Yeah, well, and, but I think what was really interesting is rather than Marx's sort of all the world struggle, um, I do believe you noted that he wrote not between religions was the struggle, but over economic power between the corrupt and the not corrupt. Um, and I think he bet used the exact right word, which is metastasized. But it, every person in the world, I think, particularly in Western society, needs to sit up and take listen to this. But you do place uh, the United States president, Donald Trump, uh, as a bit of a dupe in this sort of effort to launder, launder global illicit proceeds and um, just for our listeners, let's go to the law. You might remember that back in 2017 or so, FinCEN issued something called a geographic targeting order, which can be issued uh, occasionally in response to a pattern um, of illicit finance occurring in a particular sector. And in this case, it happened to be in real estate. And that geographic targeting order required the reporting of certain real estate transactions, particularly in New York City, and those involving cash. Now, I want to mention something here to our listeners who now have turned off because they're in their own filter bubble and we've mentioned Trump and they don't want to hear anything about him. We will get to the Clinton Foundation. Sit tight, buckle your seatbelts and let the facts come in here. But how is it Trump was such an easy target for these not very nice money men? Well, I mean, um, I, I, I would... I'd agree that it's wise to mention the Clinton Foundation as well. The crucial thing to remember, I'll get to Trump absolutely in a second. The crucial thing to remember is that our kind of hyper-partisan political culture at the moment is leaving us wide open to this kleptocratic assault. And it is an assault. And it's trying to find weak points in democratic institutions, aided by a lot of insiders, by a lot of big figures in democracy who should know better. It's trying to find weak points it's trying to find human greed and frailty across the human spectrum. Do you really think 
that Putin's people or um, uh, Kabila's people in Congo or, or, or the, the Malaysian elite's people, whoever it may be, do you really think that they're interested in ideology? They are interested in finding people who can advance their personal enrichment and their hold on power, whether, it, whether that's Hunter Biden or Felix Sater or anyone in between. Um, and, and the fact that we seem to have got into the, a lot of our media narrative seems to be that um, you either believe that all Democrats are corrupt or all Republicans are corrupt and, and, and not, the, not the other side. The, the, the sheer illogicality of that is an absolute gift to the people who want to corrupt democracies further. So Trump, um, Donald Trump was, as we know, a failed businessman um, who uh, was in a lot of trouble with um, his banks, who which were stopping lending to him around the turn of the century. And then two things happened that were perfectly suited to him and rescued him. One was the advent of reality television. So he could reinvent himself as this kind of ersatz tycoon, um, reading a spiel of absolute garbage over scenes of, of, of New York City and fictionalize himself on television and create an image that a brand, if you like, that you could you could rent out to people, gullible enough to believe it. And the other thing that happened at the same time was that after the kind of global frenzy of plunder and looting in the 90s, as the Cold War states collapsed, sort of Soviet Union being the big one, but obviously there was that that, that had huge ripple effects into the client states on other continents from the Cold War, and um, there was at the urging of Western capitalists, there was this huge vogue for privatization, which, which was essentially just a program of theft where it was implemented. After the 90s, that kind of violent, chaotic decade of hoarding assets, there's then um, there, there's an accelerating process of shifting wealth to the West, where it can, ironically enough, enjoy the protection of the rule of law, the very thing that is ab the absence of which allowed the looting to take place in the plundered countries. So that's happening just as Trump is inventing himself as this kind of walking brand and uh, on television. And um, the two things go very nicely together. So Trump starts to get associates. Um, people like Felix Sater, an extraordinary character, very grey character, who's um, he's one of the big stories that thread through the book alongside Nigel and a couple of others. Felix Sater, you know, a um, Russian-born, Brooklyn-raised um bar fighting mafia money laundering um russian contact russian intelligent contact making cia and fbi asset the kind of guy who can just turn up with osama bin laden's phone numbers um an ex extraordinarily fascinating character of our times i'd say so he he's the kind of guy who hooks up with trump and and, and um Sater and, uh, and others of that type start to construct deals whereby money that flows out of the, the 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 great kleptocracies of the former Soviet Union, Russia, but but others too, especially Ukraine, money flowing out of there, out of the lawless places, can find its way into the lawful places where it can be protected and grow and and, um, and have all sorts of nefarious effects. And um, one perfect person to push that money through is Trump, because he is um, desperately seeking a way to rent out his image. He's rubbish at building buildings. He's rents out his image to other people who can build buildings. He doesn't ask questions and he gets his cut. He is still getting his cut. Um, 
certainly as of a sort of 18 months ago, the, the most recent presidential declarations, he's still getting his cut on some of these deals. And then, so it's not that there was, in my understanding of it, it's not that he was sort of Manchurian candidate and like, you know, 25 years ago, someone from the from the KGB tapped him on the shoulder and said, look, we've got this this uh, video of you and um, a couple of lady friends in a, in, a, in, a, in a hotel room in Moscow. Maybe that did happen, but it's it's slightly subtler than that. It's that Trump knew which side his bread was buttered. He'd been sustained by kleptocracies for years. Um, and then in office, he starts to do two things. He starts to govern as a kleptocrat. He's one of many people, by the way, who was targeted like this. But he starts to govern as a kleptocrat. How extraordinary is it, if we just step back for a second, how astonishing is it that an American president has spent four years openly advertising the fact that you can put money straight in his pocket. If you're a dictator or a business executive, you take your suite at Mar-a-Lago or at the, the DC hotel, you can put money in the pocket of a US president. That is astonishing. And that's the kind of thing we would ridicule in the Nigerian president, being that, being that open about it. And then he also starts to govern through a kind of loose association of the great kleptocrats, Mohammed bin Salman, Putin himself, Kim in Pyongyang, um, Orban, Duterte, Bolsonaro. These, we, we sometimes talk about these people as though they've got a sort of ideology in common, a kind of nationalism. But the nationalism is the decoy. The nationalism is the decoy. The, the corruption is what unites these guys. Wow. Okay, that's so much to process. And, and Sorry, frankly, yeah, well, that was a bit more than you asked. But that, <laughs> no, no, my, those are, those are that my was quite a, But more specifically, I think, um, you know, there, the bottom line was that, you know, he became embroiled in this project in Toronto that has been well chronicled, I believe, by the New York Times. Um, as Actually, well it's, as chronicled, even, it's chronicled by me, that one, the Toronto one. Oh, is that right? Well, that perhaps yeah. I have to admit I am a subscriber to FT and perhaps that's where I saw it. It was a good piece. Um, very interesting, but I think the end of the story is the place crumbled. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, doesn't matter there because it doesn't matter that these things go bust because it's not about actual business; it's about moving money. Right, and in, and I don't know. Was that a situation where he was simply licensing his name, or he was actually the developer? I don't re recollect that. Yeah, licensing his name. Yeah, he he, he doesn't develop very much. He, like he licenses out his name; it's perfect. He doesn't have to check the origins of the money. He's got sort of plausible deniability, even though he's met all these people and you know he goes to grand openings with them. He's got a certain amount of plausible deniability. That is the whole basis of money laundering, isn't it? That you can um, you can use uh, kind of legal constructs to suggest that you haven't done anything wrong. Your basic nightmare. But anyway, you. I think the important thing I want to get back. It is your basic nightmare, dystopian as it is. Um, it, it, you mentioned other leaders. I think I want to emphasize this as, as you mentioned, uh, really not a partisan political issue so much as a power issue. But you've briefly touched on sort of the role of Tony Blair, who, who was uh, the PM, um, he was a Labour Party in the UK, for those of you who don't know, I suppose, what is that akin to the Democrats then, Tom? Is that how you would liken it? Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. And um, you also mentioned the Clinton Foundation, which apparently received a bit of this and that. Can you just expand on that a bit? Well, as I was saying earlier, the, um, the, thing, the thing that's so crucial to remember is that dirty money is blind to political persuasion. You know, just go back through American history, and there's been obviously corruption scandals on every part of the political spectrum. UK, UK history too. And 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 what we see again in the UK, for instance, is the the, the Russian and and other dirty money targets politicians from left and right. Um, uh, but yeah, so in the US, it does the same thing. Now, the Clinton Foundation is fascinating because it's. Um, 
you know, its critics would describe it, I think, as a favor factory. The fact that you can, it's a way, it's, it's a much subtler system than Trump. And it's nowhere near, I would think, I would say, as monstrous as, as, as Trump and what Trump's done. But it's still dangerous that you can, that you have this confluence of big money and political power. I, I, for me, what's so fascinating with the kind of liberal um, side of this, this, this question is how comfortable everybody's become so quickly with the idea that public service should be massively financially rewarding. It's, just, it's almost a contradiction in terms, but the idea that, I mean, Blair and Clinton, the big third wayers, you know, the guys who were supposed to unite the market and the left, um, or the, the market and, and, and liberals, I guess would be the term in the States. These guys have pioneered this, this thing that you, you, you then turn the contacts and influence that you've gained from your years of public office into a massive personal fortune. I mean, even Obama, I mean, look at the size of his book deal. Like, you look at the people that Biden's bringing in, they've all made fortunes in their years. Out. Well, not a lot of them, but there are, there, there are plenty of examples of people who've got extremely rich trading on the influence they gained as public servants. Now, I'm not saying they've all necessarily done anything wrong. Perhaps none of them have done anything wrong, but it's, it, 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 it's odd. It seems odd to me that, um, that this is so automatic now, that um, the fruits of your years of political service are cashed in for massive wealth instantly. It's as though you you do your years in office and if you do them right you get to graduate to this kind of global plutocracy i suppose we'd call it but that that seems to me essentially a very strange idea and i think that's the danger for kind of the clintons and the and the kerrys and the bidens and, and that that part of the american political establishment so on that score i've got one question for you did nigel actually live in south k seems a bit swanky and tony for a man who is a regulator every word of the book is true that's why it's got so many footnote, footnotes at the end. Um, and you know, Which, by the way, was my uh, my childhood neighborhood was there. And I must say that I go there now. And it, South it, there's a lot of, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, there's a lot of Russian being spoken there, to be perfectly blunt. And I was astonished at the amount of Russian-owned buildings and houses. And these are, I mean, when I was a child, these were celebrities, television celebrities and the like who lived in these places. And, and it's very clearly you see the kleptocratic influence, particularly in Knightsbridge and South Kensington and Mayfair. It's obvious, uh, I yeah. think. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so Nigel, uh, he did live in South Kensington, fourth floor flat, just around the corner from South Kensington Station, just literally about two minutes from it. It's kind of one of those old London mansion flats. Nigel wasn't a poor man. But he was he's single, he had no dependents, and he um, had had a series of, you know, reasonably well-paid jobs in banks and was quite clever with money. And um, he bought that flat a long time ago when it was relatively cheap. And, I mean, if you think that Nigel had extravagant, extravagant, extravagant taste, you should have seen the furniture, you know, all of which was unreplaced over 30 years and creaking. And but um, he wasn't, uh, by no means, an extravagant man. He just sort of... but 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 he had... It's kind of a class thing in the UK, I think. He had that thing that if you um, if you don't come from money, when you start to get a little bit of it, you feel it's very important to maintain it. Uh, so he sort of looked after the money. He looked after his money, he sort of invested it and took care of it. But um, you're absolutely right um, that South Kensington is full of kleptocratic money. And the, 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 as I write in the book, the contrast there was, you know, never more stark than that day when um, when Grenfell Tower caught fire and um, incinerated quite a lot of its poor, um, often immigrant residents. 
um, because someone had saved a few quid by slapping some crappy cladding on the outside of it. Um, and what you saw in the days after that was, in the days, weeks, months after that, was this um, essentially part of the official response was to say, we are trying very hard to rehouse everyone, but there's this big shortage of housing around there. It's very difficult. But there is no shortage of housing in South Kensington. It's just been bought by a load of kleptocrats. So that was one of the moments when um, it really came home. Apart from the dead witnesses I write about in the book, apart from the massacred strikers and so on, where you really see actually in day-to-day -day life in the big capitals of the West, when something horrific like Grenfell happens, you suddenly realise that there are these two worlds, one that's infused with kleptocratic money and one that's the outside, and they're existing alongside each other, but they're growing ever further apart. Right, which in the past, when there's been these gaps, there's been tremendous global instability. So at the end of the day, this is an issue for national security, if we're all perfectly honest. We're going to end this week's episode here, but join us again as we continue our conversation with Tom Burgess next week and get into some more provisions from the NDAA that touch on these financial regulatory issues. But for this week, thank you for tuning into NSLT. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Visit us online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Or send us an email at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org. Thank you, and we will see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thank you.